Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 1, Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, our text today, and our sermon series called, What is the Gospel? Our sermon today, though, is entitled, How is Salvation Obtained? Now, during the month of May, we have been in a series, and with no apologies, the purpose of this series is to train every member of our church so that when you have the opportunity to share your faith, you know how to do it. And we've been following an outline developed by a young man by the name of Greg Gilbert, who is the author of the little book that Lawrence said was a gift for you today. And through that little book, he trains people in evangelism by teaching them to answer four questions. Question number one is to whom is humanity accountable? We saw the first Sunday of May that we are accountable to our creator, God. And he's the God that reveals himself in the Bible. He's merciful, slow to anger. But he says he will by no means pass over the guilty. Question two is what is humanity's essential problem? Well, all we have to do is look in the mirror to see that answer, right? It's us. It's man and his sin. Question three we saw last week, what has God done about humanity's essential problem? And that answer is simply Christ. He sent that which was most precious to him, his own dear son, into the world. He lived a perfect life, sinless in every way, and he went to the cross as our substitute. And today's question, question four, is this. How do I appropriate what God has done about humanity's essential problem? How do I get in on the gospel? I'm so glad you asked because the answer is in our text today. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, something that we've emphasized throughout this series is that we Christians have the answers to life's most important questions. Those answers are in God's supernatural revelation of himself we call the Bible. And what the Bible reveals is that time and history and the events of our lives are not a random and a chaotic series of disconnected events. Rather, our God is sovereign. And he's at work every day orchestrating and directing the events of history to bring about what we call here his eternal redemptive plan. Aren't you glad of that? If I watch the news every day and all the things that have happened in our own state even in the past week, and if I believe that there was no point to it, that God didn't have a plan, that we were just left our own devices, I'd be a nervous wreck, wouldn't you? So I I like to come to church. I like to read my Bible and remind myself that God is sovereign, that it began with creation, which led to the fall which leads to what Jesus did in our redemption and one day will be consummated in the reconciliation of all things and the restoration of all things according to Revelation chapter 21. God has 
a plan. Now, part of God's plan was to send a forerunner to announce to the world that Jesus was on his way. To say, make ready, which is a very common thing in the ancient world. When a king or a sovereign was about to visit his constituency, he would give them a little warning. Didn't have emails or telephones in those days, so he sent a person out, a forerunner, and he would say, look, fill in the potholes, get rid of all the trash, and put on your Sunday best because the king is on his way. And then following close behind him would be the king and his entourage. Well, Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, grew up in relative obscurity and anonymity. And here we have in Mark 1 the inauguration of his public ministry. And we see that Jesus' credentials as the Messiah is verified at his baptism through all three members of the Trinity. See, what the Bible teaches and implies is that God's plan of redemption originated in and among the Trinity that all three members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were in on it and part of it. And each one of them plays a role in his eternal plan of saving sinners like us. First of all, there is the will of the Father. It begins there in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus reveals that he is on the scene to do the eternal will of the Father, to save a unique and distinct group of people unto himself, that one day... He will glorify with him forever and ever. So unfortunately, many people, our friends and neighbors, maybe some in this room, have a mental image of God the Father as a big old meanie, right? That, that he's sitting in heaven ready to strike people dead with lightning bolts or drop anvils on their heads. And this image you've seen from cartoons. And then there's Jesus, who's a milder, gentler version of the Father, right? That, that he comes on the scene and he's sort of tamps down those violent images that people have of God. Listen, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect harmony and agreement in every way. God the Father is a God of mercy, kindness, and grace. And this eternal plan of redemption originated with the will of the Father. And so when Jesus is baptized, beginning his earthly ministry, in verse 11, a voice came out of the heavens. That's God the Father. says, you are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Now those of you that have children have experienced moments like this, right? Where your child gets an award at school or hits a home run in baseball and you elbow the guy next to you and say, that's my boy or that's my daughter who played that recital. Well, God the Father is not just pleased with the Son every now and then. He is eternally pleased with the Son. And we have at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one bookend of God's pleasure with the Son, and at the end of His public ministry, the other bookend. The first one, at the baptism, behold my Son, whom well pleased. He's coming to do my will. And then with the empty tomb, at the resurrection, God declares for all time that Jesus has done perfectly His will. And He's forever pleased with Him. And the scripture says, because 
he has done perfectly the will of the Father. One day, every tongue will confess of things in heaven, on earth, and on the earth, and every knee will bow and recognition that Jesus Christ is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we have the will of the Father on display here in Mark 1. Secondly, we have the guidance of the Spirit. Look at verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now, many of us have the idea that the Holy Spirit initiated his work at the day of Pentecost after Jesus ascensioned into heaven. But that's not so. As we look at all of the scripture, we see the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament. He inspired the Old Testament prophets to predict the coming of the Messiah. He filled John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, for the task of being Christ's forerunner and announcer. And then here in Mark 1, he identifies Christ as the Messiah visibly as he lights on him in the form of a dove. And then after the baptism, the Holy Spirit led Christ into the wilderness for his temptation and his preparation for public ministry. And then after Jesus emerged from the wilderness, when he did his signs and wonders, he did those, the scripture says, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And even after resurrection, the Holy Spirit was operative there, raising Christ from the dead. And today, the Holy Spirit is given to every born again believer to fill us for the work he has for us to do, and that is fulfilling the Great Commission. And so we have the will of the Father carried out through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and then there is the obedience of the Son. We have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present. Now, do you ever wonder why God the Father was so pleased with the Son? Because He always obeyed Him perfectly. Brian had us raising our hands a moment ago. Raise your hand if you always did the will of your parents as a child. Yeah, nobody, right? Well, Jesus did, according to John 8, 29. He says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Children, make that your ambition, to always be pleasing to your parents. But Jesus was not just pleasing some of the time. This is perfect obedience and not partial obedience. In fact, even at the moment of his arrest, Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He always did the will of the Father. And the work of the Trinity, fourthly, was witnessed to by angels. Now, angels are created beings. And their job is to minister, as we see here in Mark chapter 1. Um, but think about the activities of angels around the eternal plan of redemption. They predicted it beforehand. If we go back to the book of Daniel, as we studied two summers ago, angels came to Daniel and predicted the Son of Man would come. They announced his birth when Jesus was born, appearing to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, keeping watch over their flock by night. They praised God at the birth of the Messiah. They ministered to Jesus in the wilderness here in Mark chapter 1. In fact, the Bible says that they were on speed dial and call to do the beck and wish of Jesus throughout his ministry. The Bible says that he could have called legions of angels to his assistance, but he did not for our sake. They served Jesus. And after his death, after his resurrection, it was angels, the scripture says, that rolled away the stone. 
and announced to those who came to anoint Jesus that he was uh, resurrected. Why seek you the living among the dead, they asked. And they were even present at his ascension. As uh, those witnesses were watching Jesus go into the clouds, they said, what are you doing waiting around here? Get busy, right? This same Jesus is coming again in like manner, the angel said. And in fact, uh, Paul tells us that one day the trumpet of God will sound, and I take that trumpet, it's going to be blown by an angel, don't you? And then the dead in Christ will rise, and the angels will come with Jesus in judgment, coming in the clouds. So uh, there's the work of the Father. He willed us to be saved. There is the guidance of the Holy Spirit who guided Jesus in His ministry and guides Christians today. And then there's the obedience of the Son. Don't get the idea that Jesus was forced or compelled to give his life. He said, no greater love is anyone than he lays down his life. He willingly, no man takes it from me, he said. And all of this was witnessed to by angels so that they may sing his praises forever. But none of that answers the question of the day, which is how do I get in on it? How is salvation appropriated? And we have to wait until verse 14 to see that, the proclamation of the good news. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now, this is a transitional time in God's plan. God has revealed himself, as we look at the Bible writ large, in different ways and in different seasons. For example, in the book of Genesis, when he created the Garden of Eden, Seems to indicate that God used to come in the cool of the morning and speak and talk and communicate with Adam and Eve almost face to face. And remember when they sinned, they hid themselves from God when he came in the cool of the morning. And after he cast them out of the garden, uh, there was a time where there wasn't that sort of communication. And of course, uh, Cain and Abel made sacrifices to God. And from the earliest stages of humanity, there was that attempt to communicate with God again. And then, of course, uh, God in his sovereignty chose um, one man after he had destroyed the world with the flood named Abram, who was a pagan who lived down in Ur of the Chaldees. And from Abram, he said that he was going to bless all the nations of the world. We take that to mean by sending the Messiah. And he preserved that nation through Egyptian bondage. And he brought them out into the wilderness through Moses and led them across the river by the hand of Joshua. And he preserved them against their enemies and brought the circumstances of human history to this moment in which a virgin gave birth to the Savior. And then for over 30 years, Jesus testified to his own truth claims through miracles and signs and wonders. But the ultimate reason that Jesus came was to die for sinners like us. And so just after John the Baptist finished his work as the forerunner, Scripture just says very, very matter-of-factly, now after John had been taken into custody. Well, we know from the other Gospels there's more to it than that, right? Not only was he taken into custody, he eventually lost his head for the sake of the Gospel, as many faithful brothers and sisters have done through the years. The point is that John's job was finished. It was time for Jesus to take center stage. John knew that inherently because what did he say? I must decrease and he must increase. And friends, that is true of every one of us. We are not the star of the gospel show. Jesus is. 
Our job is to simply point people to Jesus and to live faithfully for him until we die. And then like John the Baptist, we move off the scene and someone else takes our place. Jesus is the star. And what did he come doing? He came preaching, which means proclaiming a message. And the message he preached is described as the gospel. And you know the Greek word euangelion, where we get the word gospel means good news. But as we said a few weeks ago, it's not just the kind of good news that we think about when we talk about good news. I had some good news this week amidst all the bad news. The, you know, the gas prices went down 10 cents, okay? That's, that's good news, I guess. Um, the Rangers are, are playing better. That, that's sort of good news. But let me tell you, when we talk about the message Jesus brought, it is the good news. It is different than all other good news that became before it or will come after it. It is the good news that God has sent his son into the world to take the punishment for sinners just like us. And Jesus came in the power of the spirit proclaiming this good news message. And so that leads us to our question today. How do we get in on it? How is salvation appropriated? Maybe you've come for five weeks in a row and, and look, you're convinced. I don't have to twist your arm. You're convinced that you are accountable to your creator. That one day you'll stand before him and give a reckoning for your life when the books are open at the great white throne of judgment. Maybe you're even convinced that you personally have a sin problem. It's not just your first parents, Adam and Eve, that you inherited guilt from. You also sin and fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23. And maybe you even give intellectual assent and agreement with the fact that God has done, done something about your greatest need by sending Jesus to die in your, faith, in your place. But that still doesn't answer the question, how is salvation obtained? That is found in verse 15, in a call to belief. Look at it. Jesus is speaking. He says, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. I think Jesus had in mind there all the epics and seasons that had come before it leading up until this event. From creation to that very moment. See, there, there's two Greek words in the New Testament for time. One has to do with chronology. In fact, the word is chronos, where we get the word chronology. It means the ticking of the clock. And then there's a word that means epics or seasons. And this is the word here. That is all the times of the old covenant and the wilderness wandering and the sacrificial system and that intertestamental period, that blank page between the Old and New Testament where it seems that God was silent until the coming of John the Baptist and then the coming of Christ on the scene. Everything that needed to happen to make ready the Savior's entrance has been fulfilled. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That is, you don't have to wait for it any longer. If you want to know what this phrase means, is at hand, just hold your hand out like this. That is, the kingdom of God is as close as your hand. How close is your hand? <laughs> it's with you. It is connected to you. This is Jesus' point. All the waiting is over. He is here. The kingdom is among you, he says. And what do we mean by the kingdom of God being at hand? Well, a kingdom is the sovereign rule and reign and scope of a, of a king, right? A, a king has to have a kingdom. 
And, and when we talk about the kingdom of God, we, we do so from two perspectives. There's the already and the not yet. Now, for every born-again believer, Jesus is ruling and reigning in your heart and life. So he's already on the throne in, in one sense. But it's not universal yet, is it? Is it? <laughs> no, turn on your TV. It's certainly not. Satan has been given a dispensation, a time in which he is the God of this world, but his fate is already sealed. And he's one day and his demons are going to be cast in the lake of fire that was prepared for that very reason. And ultimately, this is what Paul meant, he said, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But that's yet to happen. That's still in the future. But Jesus says, the inauguration is here, and one day the consummation will be when Christ comes again. So this is a call to belief. So how do I get on it? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. These young men and ladies that brought in the color guard, they were calling out commands, weren't they? About faith, forward march. Well, this word repent, I guess the closest word in, in military terms is about face. I'm going in this direction. I spin on my heel and I turn and go in the opposite direction. You see, the reason I labored so hard to try to convince you that man has a problem and that man is born and is even conceived in sin is, is to let you understand that before you're saved, you have your back, spiritually speaking, to God. You're walking away from God, not towards God. And to repent is to turn and to go towards God. And then he says, you must believe. To believe means to place faith in and, and trust in. You see, um, it means more than giving intellectual assent to historical facts that Jesus lived, died, and, and rose again. Do you know who believed that Jesus lived literally and died literally and rose again literally? The devil. He gives intellectual assent to that fact, but the devil is not saved. He doesn't bow to the sovereignty of Christ. He's in open rebellion to it. And so it's not enough to give intellectual assent to historical facts that you've heard all of your life. It means to put your weight and your trust upon against all else. That is, you believe, he says here, the gospel, which includes, I believe, all the truth claims of Jesus. Everything that Jesus said he was, is, and will do is included. And you divest yourself of anything other than the gospel that you're depending upon for your salvation and trust in Christ alone. That's why we speak here of sole fide, faith alone. You put your trust in his perfect sinless life his substitutionary death, and his literal bodily resurrection. You say, well, pastor, you just said you teach sole fide, faith alone, and yet you mentioned two things I must do to appropriate faith, repentance, uh, to appropriate salvation, repentance and faith. Well, that's because repentance and faith are not really two distinct things, but rather two perspectives on the same truth. Because to follow Christ in faith and trust, you must turn from sin. It is impossible not to do one and the other. And for example, let's just pretend that in the morning, I'm going to leave Keller and go to Austin. 
So if I said I'm going to Austin, implied is I'm leaving Keller, right? And, and vice versa when I turn around and come back. I can't do one without doing both. And faith and repentance are the same way. But let's put it another way. Let, let's say there's a great flood and uh, people are washed out of their homes and the National Guard finds a man clinging to a log with his head just out of the water at the point of absolute exhaustion. And they throw the man a lifeline and they say, grab the rope and we'll pull you to safety. Well, he must first release his grip on the log before he can grab the rope, right? And so to repent is to believe and put one's trust in Christ, grabbing the rope spiritually, and to do that, you must repent. There's no such thing as salvation without repentance and faith. Becoming a Christian, in short, is not adding Christ to what you're already doing. It is replacing what you're already doing with Christ alone. It is forsaking all to follow Jesus. When I was a senior at Mississippi State University, I had a roommate who was of Indian descent. And he was very confused spiritually. He rejected the Hinduism of his family, and, and yet he did not believe in God. Very much trusted in his own ability. I guess we would call him a humanist. And we prayed for him, and we shared our faith with him. And he'd often tell us stories about visiting Hindu temples in his home city. He said, you know, I'd go in, and you know, on this side of the room there would be a Krishna idol with ten arms. And I'd go around the corner, and there would be a statue of the Virgin Mary. And over there would be a statue of Buddha. Because his religion growing up was that you had to make sure you covered all the bases. That there was truth to be found in everything. And so just keep adding things to what you believe and eventually you'll get where you're wanting to go. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is just the opposite of that. It is not adding Jesus to what you believe about yourself or what you believe about your goodness. It is despairing of anything and everything except Christ alone and clinging only to the cross. And when Jesus illustrated this truth, he did so with a story about two men who went down to the temple to pray. One was very self-righteous, very religious. He stood up to pray and announced to God that he was grateful that he wasn't sinful as these other people, particularly that man over in the corner, tax collector. Tax collector, when it's his turn to pray, the Bible says couldn't even lift his head up out of shame and simply mumbled to himself, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Jesus says, that's the man that went down to his house justified. The one who was brought low, who was emptied of everything because he came to Jesus on Jesus' own terms, which as we say here almost every week are empty hands and outturned pockets. We don't have anything to negotiate with. We don't have any leverage. When the Lord through his spirit convicts us of our own sin, his righteousness and the judgment to come, our only hope is to throw ourselves at his feet and ask for mercy. That's the gospel. Here's the wonderful news. God said way back in Exodus 34 when he revealed himself to Moses, I am a merciful God and slow to anger and ready to forgive. And you say, Pastor, can I tell that to my neighbors? Yes, you can. 
if you can remember four questions and four answers. Question number one, to whom is humanity accountable? Answer, God. What is humanity's essential problem? Himself and his sinfulness. What has God done about man's essential problem? Christ. He has sent Jesus in the world to die for sinners. What is my response? How do I get in on salvation? Through repentance and faith. If you're here today and you know not the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait for somebody to knock on your door or hand you a tract. If you understand that you're a sinner guilty before God, run to him today. Confess Jesus as Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you're a Christian here today and it's been a long time since you've told anybody about how to be saved. Would you commit with me that as the Lord gives you strength and as he gives you opportunities in days and weeks and months ahead, that you are going to open your mouth and ask these four questions and supply the answers to those who don't know. We've been praying for revival and awakening. Would you agree with me we need it in this city, in this state? If you didn't believe it, remember what happened this week in our own state. We desperately need awakening. It's our only hope. The answers to life's greatest questions, you know. You've been equipped. Now it's our responsibility to go and take that gospel message to a lost and dying world. And I'm convinced if we'll do that, if every member of this church will commit to do that, the Lord would be pleased to save many. Let's ask him to do that just now, okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you have your people in every tribe and tongue and people, group and nation. But Lord, in your sovereignty, the method, the means by which you save the lost is one saved person communicating the gospel message to an unsaved person. And then the Holy Spirit takes that proclaimed message and gives faith and repentance to that lost one. Lord, that's been happening over and again for 2,000 years and will continue to happen until Jesus comes for his church. So Lord, we want to be a part of that. We want to see you glorified among our neighbors and friends who do not yet glorify you. Father, we want to see awakening and revival. And we believe the best evidence of that is people getting saved. So Father, I pray for many salvations in this city in this county, this state, this nation. Lord, would you do it, not for our sake, but for your own glory. We beseech you, Lord, to send revival. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.